The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Friday, January 14th, 2022, as we bring you a new episode. Major League Baseball's owner subcommittee that's handling talks with the Major League Baseball Players Association proposed economic changes to consider in a new CBA. We're going to share what those changes are, at least proposed, and discuss if they do enough to move the needle in getting a new CBA agreed upon. Early indications are pointing to a big no And now national writers are mentioning the possibility of spring training being delayed for major leaguers as pitchers and catchers are set to report or at least scheduled to report in one month. However, the Chicago White Sox are currently running a mini camp at their spring training facility in Glendale, Arizona. 2021 first round pick Colson Montgomery is there and so is one of their top pitching prospects, Norhe Vera. The White Sox are moving forward with whatever business they can accomplish during the lockout. And part of that is the upcoming international signing period. Because these international prospects will not be added immediately to the 40-man rosters, the international signings can continue, which means Oscar Colas and Eric Hernandez are going to be finally into the White Sox fold. We'll share where our excitement level is for both. Joining me as the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Before we get into the latest CBA news, I want to talk some Chicago Bears football. They are the topic in sports circles within Chicago, even though the Bulls have the best record in the Eastern Conference. I have to say, though, it's a bit odd as a White Sox fan to see so many names attached to the general manager and head coach Bears job. I mean, is this what a normal interview process looks like? Yes, I guess, you know, four top jobs. Although I didn't watch the George McCaskey uh, press conference just because I've 
more or less stopped allowing the bears to hurt me. Like I have no emotional connection to the bears. I'm a fan. Nominally, I pay attention. I like reading the writing, occasionally watching the game, but I just, you know, I think I can only invest so much time and energy into sports teams as I get older, especially ones that are kind of fundamentally flawed (laughs) is the ones uh, (laughs) uh, that Chicago tends to have. So I think, you know, the White Sox are the ones I'm picking and I kind of more or less follow the other ones more casually. But the way, you know, uh, George McCaskey presented himself some ways was very uh, Reinsdorfian, just, you know, not willing to, you know, fire Matt Nagy during the season. Uh, will they, won't they with uh, Ryan Pace as the you know season dragged on? It was apparently clear that the Bears really had nowhere to go with their cap situation. And then, you know, the way he presented himself as a fan, but also the guy in charge of everything, like just uh, <laughs> didn't inspire a whole lot of confidence. So it is cool that they're doing a big search, but all, yeah, as we've seen with the White Sox, just it's one thing to start a search, but will they actually see it through in a competent way, I think is something that's, you know, the White Sox were going to embark on a big search themselves and we saw what happened. So uh, when certain ownerships have uh, track records of failure or track records of weirdness, and especially kind of small timey mom and pop weirdness or just, you know, small market weirdness, uh, then you just have to wait for them to actually see a process all the way through and not, yeah, right now I'm still half prepared for them to trip over themselves the way that the White Sox have done. So, well, I'm glad you mentioned the, I'm not a football person. I'm a fan. Yeah. (laughs) And you're in charge. Oh, that's that, that shoots up the enthusiasm and confidence. Uh, the, the bigger takeaway for me from his press conference is that the Chicago bears are 100% moving to Arlington Heights. And that will be official sometime in the first quarter of 2023 when the Arlington Heights racetrack land sale is official. So that's, that's totally happening. Soldier field is going to sit empty for most of the calendar year in Chicago uh, within a few years, uh, which that will be interesting as the, the white Sox will be, right in time for them to start discussing and what their next plans are for possibly a new stadium as their current deal with the state of Illinois uh, is set to expire uh, later this decade. But back to the whole coaching search. And I say this with Jess as a White Sox fan, last time the White Sox had a true managerial search. I think we discussed this was 2004 Mm -hmm. when they fired Jerry Manuel and they interviewed multiple people and they settled on Ozzie Guillen. Yes. When was the last time the White Sox had a true general manager interview search? Yeah, maybe after, maybe Larry Himes? Is it? Because I think everybody else has come up through, you know, Ron Schuler came up through the system. Uh, Kenny Williams came up through the system. They haven't really hired externally from that. And even, like, yeah, because Roland Heeman was replaced by Harrelson, and Harrelson wasn't, uh, that wasn't an interview process. That was an open competition. That was a midseason thing, so or after the season, but decided on during the season. So, And then Himes came after Hawk? Harrelson, yeah. I'm not sure if that, how, if that was a search, though. I'll have to look that up. I'm not sure how he came to be. The reason I ask this question is content creators. As someone that has been writing about the White Sox for 16 seasons, and this is our ninth season together podcasting, we never really experienced what Bears bloggers and beat writers and national writers who maybe cover the Chicago Bears are doing right now. I mean, I'm 37 years old, Jim. 
And we're discussing that the last time the White Sox had a full interview search for a general manager was when we were toddlers. Well, I mean, I'm 65 years old, so <laughs> I go back a bit further. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I'm looking up Larry Himes. Yeah, Larry Himes came from the California Angels. Okay. So 1987. Yes. No, 86. 1986. I was two. That's the last time the White Sox had a true general manager interview search. So if you were born after 1987, (laughs) uh, the White Sox have never had a general manager interview search in your lifetime. Like, that's really weird and odd to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you have most of the professional sports teams in the city, the Bulls just recently had their interview search, uh, and that's working smashingly. Uh, The Chicago Blackhawks might be going through their own interview search after this season. The Chicago Bears are currently doing that right now. Uh, The Cubs, I mean, that was a handoff from Theo to Jed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's no interview search there. So it's been a while since the Cubs have done it. But the last time the White Sox did it was like 1987. That's just... uh, just really crazy. So for all those that are listening that also create Chicago Bears content, uh, I'm paying attention to how you're doing this because maybe in a couple of decades when Jim's kicking around at 85 years old, mm-hmm. uh, we'll finally get that opportunity uh, for the Chicago White Sox. All right, let's talk about the latest news in Major League Baseball, and this was released Thursday night, January 13th. Uh, The owners have counterproposed or at least came up with their ideas on some core economic changes to hopefully draw up interest from the Players Association in creating a new CBA. A lot of these items are coming from the excellent reporting from Evan Drellich of The Athletic, and Jeff Passett and Jesse Rogers of ESPN. So big thanks to those reporters that have gotten this information after clearly talking to the Players Association. The biggest item, it seems that the owners were willing to change, Jim, was Super 2 and how those prospects are getting paid from their second season that qualified being a Super 2 and enter into arbitration in Season 3. Typically, most prospects have three years of being paid the league minimum, and then they enter into arbitration. Mm -hmm. I did not have this as a critical item, and I'm still... Oftentimes, I get confused on who even qualifies for Super 2. Usually, I have to wait to see who MLB trade rumors, you know, people that spend their time looking at this from all of the rookies or all the prospects to determine super two. Mm -hmm. Do you think this is a big deal in today's game regarding as far as super two status? No, not really. It seems like the core issue for the MLBPA is to get younger players paid more earlier. Uh, that seems to be, you know, what they're going for. And the idea would be, you know, at the very least, like a higher, uh, a significantly higher minimum salary to, to start. And then, you know, maybe then you have the pay ramp up with uh, different ways of calculating arbitration or simply just, 
shorten the amount of time going through arbitration, whether it's, you know, shows up earlier in a player's career and then they're free agents after five years or whether they go into arbitration after two years or after even after one year. Maybe they're just an, in arbitration forever. Like basically the players like the idea of having a way to negotiate a salary, even if they can't quite get market rate, they can at least say, hey, I had a good year. This should have been worth this compared to players X, Y, and Z. This is my offer. And then, you know, teams can counter with something else. And oftentimes they meet in the middle, but uh, there have been at least more cases over the last few years of actually going to trial and seeing whose number wins. But players, while that, that, that you know, method of hammering out a salary is oftentimes, you know, unpleasant, and results in sore feelings at least allows the player some agency not free agency but at least some agency in commanding a higher salary than you know the the typical pay scale would uh, dictate so it seems like you know major league baseball is doing the bare minimum of acknowledging that by saying well maybe we can pay you earlier in a different way uh you know just but ultimately just kind of shifting around the number is currently on the table and ultimately not resulting in too many players getting paid more. Because I think the other thing too with arbitration is that we're seeing more players getting cut in arbitration, like between their, you know, second and third years of arbitration. Like I'm thinking like Eddie Rosario suddenly not worth, you know, eight to 10 million Kyle Schwarber, not worth, worth 8 million. Like these guys who would, you know, ultimately get deals around that figure by other teams are just getting cut. And I think that's, you know, another issue. So while they can say, well, we'll, we'll tweak super twos a little bit that ultimately doesn't change the trajectories and how teams are making very calculated decisions. One, uh, to introduce a player to the major leagues. And then once it becomes that, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth year, they're making hard decisions there. So it, it seems like, there's that little window of time for players to really make a dent in their earnings. And I think uh, Major League Baseball is trying to prevent a major overhaul of that system because it works so well for them. You mentioned the league minimum. Right now, the league minimum is around $570,000. I think for a lot of us did that, that uh, did the Sox Machine Offseason Plan Project, we listed it at around five seventy-five, dollars And there are many that are suggesting because Major League Baseball's minimum wage is by far and away the lowest amount out of the four professional sports uh, in North America, yes, even lower than the NHL, that in order to come to an agreement, the Players Association should push hard on that. And some are recommending a minimum salary of $1.5 million dollars. That's a pretty big jump. And with the majority of the league trying to get younger, mm -hmm. right? Because this whole rebuild plan, the blueprint works when you could take advantage of the fact, like using the Chicago Cubs 2015-2016 run, for example, is because you got Javier Baez on a league minimum. You got Chris Bryant on a league minimum. That allows you to sign someone like John Lester and Jason Hayward to large deals to still be within whatever payroll budget that owners give you, right? And this is where we as White Sox fans oftentimes look back at the 2019 offseason 
and have a little bit regret for the White Sox because they should have done more to take advantage of the opportunity that they had with still playing, uh, still paying some of their key core players league minimum salaries. And now here you are coming into 2022 and guys are getting their big bumps in salary with the contract extensions that you signed or Lucas Giolito is heading into arbitration soon. So uh, he is going to be continuing to climb as far as his salary. If you bump that minimum from 570 to one and a half million, I wonder from a players association perspective, Jim, if that gets them closer and at least to the table to continue negotiating, Mm -hmm. because it sounds like focusing on super two from the owner's perspective is not doing anything to keep the players at the table. Yeah. I I would point everybody to uh, Travis Sawchick uh, on Twitter. He's got a thread following up on an uh, article that he wrote at the end of the CBA's uh, term and then the lockout being uh, instituted. But he said that he was pointed out that, as you mentioned, Josh, that the league minimum for major league baseball is lowest of the sports. And he also noted that major league baseball leans upon minimum salary labor more than any other sport. Uh, and he pointed out some numbers saying that 63% of players have yet to uh, reach three years of service time, that they account for 53% of days of service time accumulated, but only 9% of pay. And he said that basically like it would take in order to um, keep up with inflation, it would have to be around like 650,000, uh, you know, for a minimum salary. And then you'd have to assume that, you know, you'd have to scale it up and be willing to do that. But it's been just, you know, the way the league has trended. Uh, another good number is that he said that the average player had 4.8 years of service time in 2003, but now it's 3.7 in 2019. So just the amount of players being churned through uh, is so much greater. So, you know, we had Evan Marshall on the podcast and he talked about you know, how much of a battle it was for him to get to his first arbitration year. And, you know, he had a traumatic incident with the line drive hitting him in the head. And now he's got Tommy John surgery to deal with. Like it's, it's tough for most players to get to that big contract, you know, not even the first year of arbitration, but like the second one is when you're talking about like, Oh, that's maybe a chance to really sock some away. Even if your career ends like next year, you might have a chance by their second arbitration year to, you have some some savings to rest upon for a while to while you figure out your next move. So that's, I think, what's, you know, the most pressing issue for baseball. And, you know, like I've said before a few times that, you know, we, we heard it so often when the White Sox and other teams were uh, lording the ability to suppress service time of prospects uh, year in and year out. And we heard fans saying, well, that's the right to do so. And like, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it is, but now it's the player's chance to negotiate better the way that they were told to negotiate better. So they really should be holding out for uh, the most material improvements to the life for the bulk of their members, which should be the higher minimum. And then whether it gets to shortening uh, arbitration to get to free agency or, or sorry, shortening the pre-arbitration period to get to free agency or, you know, just whether they feel preserving arbitration is the best and then upping the competitive uh, balance threshold to, you know, 240 million to get players paid more on the back end might be another good combo of like early career and late career balance to strike. But yeah, it's uh those seem to be like the, when I look at it, at least the best sandwich, yeah, I guess the least complicated path towards making material improvements for like, most of the members of the MLBPA. And I have to imagine that if you increase 
the salary minimum that you'll have to do that for guys of the 40-man roster, right? Because so many of these players are getting shuttled back and forth. I think like organizations like Tampa Bay and Los Angeles Dodgers, right? Because they come from the same think tank (laughs) of executives. Maybe the Boston Mm -hmm. Red Sox will start doing this now as well. I I have to imagine that guys in the 40-man roster will have to be paid more. And maybe the Players Association has to stand up for those players as well, guys that are not on the 26-man roster but still in the 40-man roster, to make sure that they're they're getting paid more. Because if you're getting shuttled back and forth all the time, you're on the you're on the 26-man roster. Now you're not on the 26-man roster, so you go from getting paid a major league salary to back to whatever you get paid at AAA. That is a huge difference in, in pay. So. I think mm-hmm. that really does need to be fixed. And I'm not sure if the owners are interested because as you mentioned with Travis's findings, what was it like they get 9% of the pay, but they make up 63% of the league right now. Let me look up the number just to make sure. Yeah. 63% of the league, uh, 10% of pay. So 9.8%. So let's round up to 10. Okay. So The other 90% of pay is for the 37% of players that have four years of service time or or more. Yes. 37% of the league is having four years of service time or more. So that's very close to only one third of the league even hits arbitration. So maybe we are focusing too much on the arbitration scale. And the Players Association, I know that they want the veterans to get paid in the back end, and I totally get that. But they really should probably focus on like rookie deals. Because I know the NFL has rookie deals. Mm -hmm. The NBA has rookie deals as well. And I I don't know if the owners are going to budge, but I I think this is going to be a key battleground in CBA talks is getting players to get paid more money. And from a White Sox perspective, this is your Dylan Cease, your Michael Kopech, your Andrew Vaughn, your Gavin Sheets, you know, guys that the White Sox are adding to the 26-man roster because they're very talented players. They're also very cheap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they and they may allow the White Sox to do other things like pick up Craig Kimbrell's option and hope to trade him or they're going to be paying so much money for high leverage relievers going into 2022. It gives teams like the White Sox that benefit to be able to field the best team possible. It's the same thing with the Tampa Bay Rays and even the rebuilding teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates and the Baltimore Orioles coming into the season. So the more I read about this and, you know, the discussion that you are and I, you and I are currently having, Jim, I, I figure that I'm going to circle that. That's got to be a key battleground in these CBA talks is that the guys that are in years one through three of their career, they got to get paid more. Yeah, it's fair. You know, when, when you talk about like billionaires versus millionaires, like those guys aren't yet millionaires. So no, they're not. Yeah. No, they are not. All right. So super two, that's not going anywhere. A couple of things here before we take a quick break with a word from our sponsors. Uh, the Major League Baseball draft. The changes that the owners are proposing is a lottery for the top three picks. Like, shrug. <laughs> I mean, if that were available for this upcoming draft, you would have a three-team lottery with the Baltimore Orioles, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the Texas Rangers. 
and it'll be on MLB Network, and you'll get Rob Manfred or some other big wig from the commissioner's office showing who's got the number three pick and who's got the number two pick. And then, ta-da, you get the number one pick, and maybe it is the Texas Rangers. And ha-ha, Baltimore, Arizona, you should have only won 52 games in 2022. Now you only have the second pick in Major League Baseball <laughs> And draft. you still might get who you want. Yeah, exactly. No kidding. No kidding with the way that things work, right? Yeah. like uh, well, it, I'm thinking like when Carlos Rodon was drafted, if the White Sox won the lottery and were top pick, they would have picked Carlos Rodon because <laughs> he was available at the third spot. So... Yeah. yeah, yeah. three teams is not enough for me. I think it's got to be 10 teams if you're going to do this because the Colorado Rockies have the 10th pick and they were 74 and 87. So they were 22 games better than the Arizona Diamondbacks who are within the same division, the National League West. Now, if you took 10 teams and you put them in a bucket and you drew on who is going to be in the top 10, well, that may encourage winning if they all have equal odds of having the number one pick, right? At least I would hope so, because again, you're trying to avoid tanking to the bottom because teams are doing that now in order to get the number one pick. So I think if you expanded it to 10 teams for this lottery, then unfortunately, you know, from a White Sox perspective, that would include the Royals and the Twins in the mix to try to get the number one pick. And the Chicago Cubs currently have the seventh pick overall in the 2022 Major League Baseball draft. So with my proposal, they would also be involved and try to get the number one pick. But that's a pretty sizable gap. I mean, 22 game difference from the team that has the number one Mm -hmm. pick and the number 10 pick. I say do it that way and just put 10 teams and give them a lottery ball, put 10 lottery balls in a lottery machine and spit them out. And here's your top 10 picks. And, you know, don't. Don't reward the teams tanking straight to the bottom. And I think the players have wanted top eight, I think, to be. Uh, I think that's what they proposed, the top eight. That's teams. still 21 games. I mean, the yeah. Twins have the eighth pick. Yeah, and that's fine. Like, eight seems like eight is enough. We'll say it that way. <laughs> Eight's enough. Like, I think at that point, you start getting to the middle tier of uh, draft prospects to where uh, it doesn't feel too materially different, like, you know, picks nine versus pick 12 versus pick you know, 14. Right. Cause when I look at that and I'm using tankathon.com, uh, great resource as far as the MLB draft here. The Tigers had the 12th pick in this upcoming draft. They were 77 and 85. The Tigers, Angels, and Mets all tied with the same record and they have picks 12, 13, and 14. So really the difference between, you know, pick seven, let's say, the Chicago Cubs, they had 71 wins. And pick 14 is a six-win difference. The difference between pick one to pick seven is a 19-game difference in the standings. Uh, That's how bad tanking has gotten in Major League Baseball, where it was obvious that the Orioles and Diamondbacks were aiming for 110 losses in a season, uh, which is just absolutely crazy to think about, but that's what they did. So at least with the first two items of what the owners proposed, I get the feeling we agree, Jim, that it's really not enough to entice the Players Association. Yep. All right. So let's talk about the other items in the CBA, including the league's idea on fighting service time manipulation after a quick word from our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast as we continue to discuss the latest CBA proposal from the Major League Baseball owners. And Jim, we left off talking about the Major League Baseball draft lottery, the proposed lottery. Let's talk about how the league wants to fight service time manipulation. And this comes from Jeff Passan of ESPN, and he wrote, The league's attempt Thursday to address service time manipulation came via rewarding teams that promote top prospects who find success. MLB proposed awarding a draft pick, a draft pick, if a team places a top 100 prospect on its opening day roster. And that player then wins the rookie of the year or finishes in the top three of the MVP or Cy Young voting within their first three seasons. This offer also includes a possibility of a pick in an international draft. But Jim, like this is interesting in the sense that, hey, if you have a top 100 prospect and they're on their opening day roster and they go win rookie of the year, congratulations, you are going to earn an extra draft pick in next year's Major League Baseball draft. This in no way fights service time manipulation because we should have saw Luis Robert sometime in September 2019. We didn't because the White Sox didn't want to start his clock. He was on their opening day, quote unquote, opening day roster in 2020. And if he would have won rookie of the year in 2020 or because he's entering his third season, let's say he wins the MVP in 2022, under this proposal, the White Sox would earn an extra draft pick because they called up their top 100 prospect, Luis Robert, on the opening day 2020 roster. However, they still manipulated his service time because he was clearly ready to play for them in September 2019. So you are rewarding the White Sox twice for messing with Luis Robert's service time. So... In, I, maybe I'm wrong, but in no way mm-hmm. does this proposal for Major League Baseball actually address the service time manipulation part. 
it addresses only like a very small sliver of cases. Like Andrew Vaughn maybe would be one of those cases where if Andrew Vaughn, you know, had a better rookie year and, 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 you know, perhaps one rookie of the year because he's placed on the opening day roster unnecessarily, like the White Sox could have held him back for a couple weeks or, you know, a month, you know, and, and, and would have been within their rights and would have made some baseball sense. It would have made a baseball argument to do so. Like they would have been rewarded theoretically if Vaughn had a better season for that. But as you mentioned, yeah, just, it doesn't do anything for the second half of season cases. Uh, the ones who make their case for being called up in July or August or September. <laughs> just those, uh, as we've seen over the years, especially when September call-ups come around and you're already talking about who to add to the roster anyway, because, so-and-so needs to be protected from the rule five draft and you know they're they're dragging their feet until after the season to do it that's i think the the cases where yeah that's yeah it just uh that, those are the ones that that draw the biggest arguments because those are months long arguments uh we're having those arguments in may and all the way through uh you know sep- the first week of september uh versus like the ones this covers are basically like for spring training success stories or maybe like a uh, a late spring injury that pops up and do you want to you know burn service time on a guy who might be called up uh one month into the season like that's really the uh, a small cross-section of cases i think that really doesn't add anything and, and, and even then like when it's still a matter of like this is a decision that costs us you know millions of dollars or in the case of a draft pick depending where it is like a couple hundred thousand in the draft pool yeah yeah and if you again I think Yuan Makata and Tim Anderson were both called up in July. So if I recall correctly, uh, Makata was definitely in July because it was after the Todd Frazier trade. Mm-hmm. These are the types of prospects that could qualify for Super 2 because they accumulate enough service time after their second season. But GMs know this, and that's why we started seeing not you know these prospects were not being called up in September to start the service time or to start their clock. And they are waiting into the following season to call them up. And even like using the Chris Bryant example, which is the example that both sides continue to use. Chris Bryant still won the 2015 rookie of the year, even though the Cubs messed with his service time. So they would have been rewarded. They would have gotten that mm-hmm. extra year service time for Chris Bryant and won another draft pick in the following Major League Baseball draft. So this idea that, oh, Major League Baseball, this is our way of fighting service time manipulation, did not clearly think this one through. The second part, our friend Jim Callis would suddenly wield a lot of power, mm-hmm. right? He and Jonathan Mayo of MLBPipeline.com and the folks at Baseball America and even Kylie McDaniel over at ESPN and Eric Loggenhagen of Fangraphs, all of these people who are well-connected and do an amazing job creating top 100 prospect lists, all of a sudden wield a lot of power because whoever is in that top 100 prospect list are going to be targeted in this proposed manner. And I don't think they want that heat because you know what? They wouldn't get that heat. They would get scouting directors, you know, adding pressure. Listen, I'll give you 
you know, whatever additional information that you want about our draft strategy, but I need this guy to be in our, in that top 100 list because we may call him up on opening day. We want this extra draft pick. Yeah. It reminds me of Byron Buxton contract and how like his bonuses were tied to MVP finishes. And you just wonder like, say like a, you know, one writer gives him a fifth place finish and just like thinking like, well, that just made uh, Buxton $4 million or like, <laughs> or like 2.5 million. Yeah. If he doesn't get the, uh, even if he finishes like, you know, um, or sorry, 3 million if he finishes like 10th and just uh, like that, that writer just made Byron Buxton 3 million. It's a, it's a weird uh, conflict of interest. And it does seem like, you know, with uh, a previous uh, uh, proposal where major league baseball factored in some of its arbitration year pay raises on wins above replacement calculations. Like it seems like they're farming the hard work out on independent sources and trying to rope them into it. And without even asking whether they want to be in that position, <laughs> And I don't, I don't think right. it really makes sense, you know, for, uh, writers to want to have to be in that position. Yeah. It, we would be looking at top 100 prospect lists completely different. And that's not the intention. The intention of top 100 prospect lists is for the casual baseball fan that may want to know who are the next possible superstars in major league baseball. Well, here are. 100 very intriguing players down in the minor leagues that you should know. That's what these lists are for. Not the 100 minor league players that if they get called up on an opening day roster and they win some awards can earn additional draft picks for their teams. Like, yeah, that's this, this entire idea of what has been proposed from the owners to the players association. I hate every single word in these paragraphs that I am reading about this uh, fighting service time manipulation proposal, Jim. I just, I think it's very bizarre and I am really hoping that it's dead on arrival and it's not going to be part of the final CBA. All right. The international draft, because it's been hinted at the possibility of an international draft. And this has been part of the conversation for a few years now. And we have the international signing period coming up this weekend. We're going to talk about that for the White Sox here in a moment. International draft, Jim. Are you in favor or against it? Uh, I guess against. I don't really care so much. It's not something that, you know, based on the way the White Sox operate, you know, in the, you know, I guess I've always looked at it in terms of like, oh, would it benefit the White Sox or not? And I guess theoretically it might. Yeah. It just doesn't really move the needle to me too much. I think it makes, I think players, international players, players who come up through the system, like having the uh, luxury of choosing, uh, you know, which, you know, whether it's the best organization for them, the one that wants to pay them the most, the one where they feel like they have the best path towards contributing, like they have, you know, based on what their trainers have said, based on what people they know, their friends going up have said, like, you know, word of mouth type situations, like these teams will treat you well. These teams know what they're doing. These teams will, you know, help you get to the major leagues. Like they, they like having that, that luxury. And so I think I've just tended to decide with, giving players some autonomy, but you know, I think ever since the, like, say if the system went from like an uncapped system to the draft, that would have been like Stark. And then it would have been, you know, based on how the White Sox were disadvantaged, say like, Hey, that's great for the White Sox uh, because they didn't swim in that deep end at all. And now it's just like tailored to them. Like just, here's a good player to pick, pick one. <laughs> like that's kind of where it would go for them. But I think since it went to the, 
you know, hard cap and the very stiff penalties, like after Luis Roberts signing, like just really uh, draconian penalties for going over the budget limits. It's more or less think, you know, turned the system into, you know, maybe not a draft necessarily, but just a draft like system in which teams can only amass so much talent uh, in one given year. So that's why I think like, you know, to me, uh, the system is basically already there. Just a matter of what order the players go. And if players want to maintain some autonomy and picking where they go, that's, that's more or less fine. Yeah. I think, yeah, I guess I don't know what I think about an international draft. I know there are some legal loopholes that they're going to have to jump through regarding as far as the international draft. And they're going to need some countries buy-ins, especially if you're drafting 16 and 17 mm-hmm. year olds. So that would be interesting to see and how Major League Baseball will handle it. I do think it would help the Chicago White Sox. Yeah. That I I do agree with you. An international draft would help the Chicago White Sox, where right now they're still struggling a little bit, especially when it comes to the top-tier teenagers from the Dominican Republic. The other items, real quick, from the CBA that the owners propose that I do think will get accepted – a 14-team playoff, I know, Jim, you're not in favor of it. Something that did catch my eye with the NFL playoffs mm-hmm. starting this weekend, and they have a 17 playoff format, is that 21 of the 32 NFL teams have reached a postseason within the last calendar year, hmm. which is a bit fascinating. And obviously, we're talking about different beasts here. But if you expand to a 14-team playoff, I wonder if we get more diversity of teams that reach the postseason where it's not the same handful of teams every single season uh, with the current 10-team playoff. But I, I found that to be interesting and wondering if that's influencing Major League Baseball. But the league itself, Major League Baseball, wants a 14-team playoff. Uh, and they probably want that sooner than later. Uh, if the players can earn more money, including getting a share of the television contract money for the postseason, I think we're going to see a 14-team playoff. Uh, Major League Baseball has proposed a universal DH. I think that is totally happening. Major League Baseball did not propose any new changes for a path to free agency. Again, that is a huge sticking point for the Players Association. So that's dead on arrival as far as that aspect. And Major League Baseball has no new changes to the collective bargaining tax, continuing to put the limit at $210 million before taxes uh, teams would have to pay taxes for their payroll exceeding that amount. The Players Association wants that to be increased to $240 million before taxes are uh, paid out. And that will allow the teams like the Yankees and the Mets and the Dodgers and the Red Sox and the Phillies to really spend and continue to spend some serious cash if you continue to raise that limit, which is what the players want to do, but the owners do not. So that is what was proposed from the owners to the Players Association there is no news on the next time these two parties will talk, but Jim, it really does sound like that this is very underwhelming offer from the owners to the players. And there are many, again, you're seeing Jeff Hassan write about it and other national writers as well. Worried that spring training is going to have a delay, but we talked about this last week with the White Sox hosting their mini camp and having all the non 40 
man players report to Glendale. I think Major League Baseball is going to move forward with spring training with or without the players. They just can't move forward past opening day. Yeah, probably. Like when it comes to just the the idea of like, yeah, the mini camp, the minor leaguers, like they need to have their careers, especially if they're not in the union, they're not yet protected. Like they have their right to get better and get uh, in a position where they can be in the union. So it does make sense for them to go along with it. But yeah, you mentioned just the, you could just the few items at the end. And that's why I think like, you know, either improving the competitive balance techs uh, up top to where it's like, you know, 225 million or something like that. You know, I think they, I think the players proposed 240 million and I can see that being like maybe too much, but I think even if you bumped it up 15 million, you get more teams willing to go over 200. Cause I think there are a whole bunch of teams like on the doorstep to where, if you're, you know, looking at like six to eight teams spending 20 million more a piece, that's, that adds up, uh, for a, a chunk of the league. So I think, you know, mm-hmm. even if the players don't get what they want, you know, I think it doesn't need to be that much of an increase up top to have meaningful, meaningful implications for a chunk of the league that uh, isn't getting paid the way it wants to be paid. And then I think just, you know, as you mentioned, no changes to the path for free agency. And I think that's why it comes down to just getting the players who are in years one through three paid more in order to take that sting away. Like, you know, if if major league baseball is hell bent on having six years of control up to seven years of control based on the way manipulation goes. And if manipulation is always going to be hard to stamp out, uh, then players need to be paid, you know, more earlier. And so that's kind of all roads to me lead back to a, a higher minimum salary, maybe a, you know, 10% 10% higher minimum salary or something like that. Let's talk about the international signing period, which is going to be happening on Saturday. And Jim will be recapping the Chicago White Sox activity over the weekend. Uh, we're going to have Phil Selig, who writes and also takes a bunch of video of the Cuban baseball players, and the Cuban prospects. He does a terrific job. And he's going to be joining me. We're going to be recording a new podcast on Sunday. So that will be available to you on Monday to talk about the marquee international signee for the White Sox. And we've been hearing his name now for more than a year. Oscar Colas is expected to be signing with the Chicago White Sox officially, finally on Saturday, along with Dominican teenage outfielder Eric Hernandez. So Jim... Between Coloss and Hernandez, where's your excitement level for these new international signees? I think Coloss is interesting just because, you know, left-handed power uh, and, and, you know, an arm in left field. Uh, I think he's been in good enough shape to where he, he doesn't have to be a DH. He's somebody who could, you know, he played well enough in Japan in the limited time he had there in, in the minor leagues for the most part in Japan until the very end to where like he was building on something like there's a skill set there, but uh, depending on what his situation is and whether he's going to spend an entire year in DSL for tax purposes or whether the White Sox are maybe able to increase his bonus to maybe get him to the majors earlier. Um, the White Sox tend to have less money committed in, in each year's pile because they aren't, they don't go all in on 16 year olds or maybe when they're 15 or 14, like they don't have that kind of uh, money tied up in advance to where they can make late shifts for Cubans who come on the markets in in the unpredictable fashion, which they often do show up. And so maybe, you know, they have enough room in their budget to say like, well, we'll pay you 
2.7 million, maybe the best offer remaining was like 1.5. And so maybe they'll say like, if we give you 2.7, you'll come to the majors earlier and, and just factor in the taxes, the cost of doing business. Uh, but you know, if it happens to be the case for every, uh, signing that the White Sox have, who's not stateside already to where, um, you know, they spend the entire year in the DSL to avoid paying a big chunk of their bonus on taxes, then that's a lot less impressive. And that's why, you know, Eric Hernandez being somebody who turned 17 on the signing day on January 15th, uh, from the Dominican, the White Sox have not spent a a seven figure bonus on a player from the Dominican since Josue Guerrero uh, back during the Luis Robert year. And two years after Luis Robert signed there in the penalty box, they couldn't sign any, anybody for more than 300 grand. So, you know, those years were, they were out of it. But even since then, in the three years since, like they just couldn't. All their seven-year or seven-figure bonuses over the last few years went to Gilbert Sanchez and Yolki uh, Cespedes and Jorge Vera. And, you know, that's all well and good, but it's nice to have somebody like an Eric Fernandez come in at 17. If he spends the entire year in the DSL, you don't hear about it because most 17 year olds do spend the entire year in the DSL for every team. Like, uh, and and they get to keep their entire bonus or, you know, say you have the huge tax savings on it, but nobody cares because every other team does it. It's just that they sign 16 and 17 year olds and they're going to be there anyway. So I think, you know, so much attention has been paid to it for the White Sox because they sign guys who are 20 and should be in the States or 21 to 23. Uh, so having for, uh, you know, having a guy in the Dominican uh, who's 17 years old come over, spend the entire year in the DSL and, and play among players who are also 17 and learning the league, I think is going to be a nice change of pace. And, and you don't have to worry about the the dollar figure so early can let a more natural development cycle play out. So I'm more excited about that one. And I am hoping that it's more indicative of just what Marco Patti will be able to do going forward, not be so, you know, not have a strategy be so reliant on uh, the unpredictable timelines of Cuban defectors who are in their twenties. You have more players who can be scouted, you know, the way other teams scout players and have them signed uh, when other teams, the, the teams who do it well, sign them. Yeah, because the idea is that with an Eric Hernandez, as you mentioned, he's 17 years old. He spends all of 2022 in the Dominican League. That's fine. He can join, you know, maybe Glendale to start 2023 because he's 18 years old. Or if you really think highly of him and you think Hernandez can handle hot, you know, single A, you could send him to Canapolis and they're 18 years old. That might be a bit of aggressive assignment. However, mm-hmm. as we've seen with the White Sox lately, that they do want to spend their first round and second round picks on prep players. You can start building a younger wave together as a group. And remember the whole wave after wave after wave of talent that the White Sox wanted to accomplish. And unfortunately, there isn't much of a second wave right now uh, in Charlotte and in Birmingham to help out the 2022 White Sox in a significant way. But this is the way to do it. You, you spend the money on the Dominican teenagers, 16, 17 years old, let them spend a year in the Dominican 
you know, for tax purposes and also development purposes. So when they turn 18, 19 years old, all right, they're in A ball and they're also in A ball with your most recent draftees. Uh, in your July Major League Baseball draft. And now you've created this core that you could focus your player developments on and, and seeing how they build up over time. And I think, especially if you look at the track record for Tampa Bay and for Houston, it clearly works. And they are clearly getting huge gains, especially in the minor leagues. And just look at their win-loss records, for God's sake. I think Tampa mm-hmm. Bay won the championship in almost every level except for A, and that team lost in the championship game. Uh, yep. So th- <laughs> that's the model that you want to aim for. And the way to accomplish that, again, you got to get in in this pipeline of the teenagers in the Dominican Republic. Oscar Colas. Okay, he does this for tax purposes. Okay, let's say he spends all 2022 in the Dominican Republic. He played seven games for the SoftBank Hawks in 2019. And I'm going to discuss this with Phil for Monday's podcast. But here's my concern, Jim. It's Mm -hmm. not a lot of game action in about three years. And by the time he plays in the minor leagues for the White Sox, He's going to be 24 and a half years old. And if you mm-hmm. let him play in the minors for an entire year to get a feel of what he can do and how he adapts to life in the United States and playing baseball in the States, even if he is available and he just lights the world on fire in Birmingham and Charlotte in that first year, he's still going to be like 25 and a half years old if he reaches the majors. And if he stumbles, he might be 26 years old or, God forbid, older before he joins the majors. That, that is where I'm concerned. Now, I'm hearing you podcast listeners. Jose Abreu was 27 years old when he joined the White Sox. But Jose Abreu was also known to be the world's best hitter that nobody knew about. And he signed for a lot of money. <laughs> the teams, you know, was it just the White Sox offering six years, 60 plus million dollars for Jose Abreu? Uh, obviously, you can't do that for Oscar Colas. But I'm looking at like the top 50 international prospect lists. And I'm seeing 18-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 17-year-olds. And then here's Colas. He's the outlier. He's 23 mm-hmm. and a half years old. Uh, so this is where I am a bit concerned because I agree with you. The direction, especially signing someone like Eric Hernandez, I feel is the direction the White Sox should be going. Man, Coloss needs to hit. He needs to hit immediately in 2023. Or I'm going to feel like I'd feel like right now with Yobert Sanchez and wondering if that was a couple of million dollars that you just lit on fire. Well, uh, yeah, with Colossus, he did play 66 games also for the uh, Fukuoka's uh, minor league team. So he did, you know, have a okay, most well, of the season. Good. So yeah, it's like he he was playing and he earned his way up. He played really well in the minor league. He's got a call up at the very end of the season. So he has, you know, he did have a foolish season in 2019, but still t- missing all of 2020, missing all of 2021 and 2022 playing under his, uh, you know, well under his talent level. We saw with you know, Cespedes, 
that he missed, uh, you know, he, he had barely played in 2019, missed all of 2020. And then like we saw the rust have to be kicked off and uh, the injury, uh, a little bit of a shoulder problem early on in 2021. So it was a late start to his season. And he was stateside when the White Sox signed him. So he didn't have to worry about the tax purposes. He could just be thrown right into the fray. So that's why I think like, it's going to be more rust involved with Coloss, and you just hope that his talent, uh, which has been you know well regarded for a while, you know can win out. But it does seem like they're kind of playing with the, <laughs> with fire a little bit with the idea like how little baseball does a guy need to play, and still be good. Um, that's right. I think the the tough part. And I guess the good thing with Gilbert Sanchez is like he actually has, but he's another guy who had some rust issues. Uh, coming, you know, playing DSL and not really playing all that well there, and then having a slow start to his stateside uh, you know, season. Like he last played, uh, I'm looking at his record, like he played winter ball 2017 18, then played in the DSL in 2019, lost all of 2020 to the pandemic. So 2021 at age 24 is when he makes a stateside debut. And he was rough early on too before finally finding some momentum later in the year. So it's just, you know, it's a lot of time lost, I think. And you hope that, you know, especially when you're talking about guys who aren't like Gilbert Sanchez was thought to be a shortstop, but by the time he got to play stateside, he had kind of uh, filled out a little bit. Now he's basically a second baseman who can play some shortstop. And when you have guys who are have some athleticism, but it's more or less limited, like it feels like when you're not getting them active when they're 20 through 22, you're just kind of uh, hoping that their speed, their legs don't get away from them. And I think that's another, another issue and why the White Sox have had such a log jam at first base DH left field and why they've had so many, uh, you know, so many farm systems now where if they didn't pick the guy in the first round or if they didn't trade somebody who's a, a massively impressive major leaguer for that player, uh, their future value, their rankings and fan graphs and so forth is pretty much underwhelming because they don't have that kind of athleticism that allows you know the evaluators to really dream on them. And with Colossus' situation, bringing back the conversation briefly about the White Sox right field, the really only internal option that they have maybe for this season or even next season would be Yolki Cespedes. So back to the free agent talks and the trade talks post CBA. Yeah, you better go sign Michael Conforto or you better go sign Nicholas Castellanos because if Coloss and Cespedes do perform well and they do push the issue, you could always move Eloy Jimenez to DH and move these guys to left field. Uh, so they're, again, that's a good problem to have when you have more good players and spots to fill. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what every team wants to aim for. But I know we had a lot of discussion of, well, what about Coloss? Well, it sounds like we're not even going to see Coloss in stateside until 2023 anyways. But we'll get more information about Coloss and learn more about him from Phil C-League in Monday's podcast episode. But that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I wish I had better news for you guys that a new CBA uh, is coming, uh, but alas, what the owners have proposed, maybe more time spent at the drawing board is needed from the owners, or they're just going to sit back and wait until the players make a counterproposal, which uh, we'll see when that happens. But again, in one month, pitchers and catchers are supposed to report. So fingers crossed that still does happen and we can get the season underway. I'm not too concerned about opening day, 
Um, but again, if this uh, if this continues on for another month and we don't have a new CBA gem, I am going to be very concerned about opening day uh, starting on time and wonder if there's going to be delay to the 2022 season. And then we'll have to think about our alternate content strategies. Yes, yes. Maybe continue talking about the Chicago Bears head coach GM searches. <laughs> but thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. If you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have been a longtime listener or, again, a new face of Sox Machine, and if you enjoy our work and you want more content, think about signing up at Patreon dot com slash socks machine where our patreon supporters get exclusive content they get ad free versions of both the podcast and the website and when we have new socks machine swag they also get the first opportunity to acquire that socks machine swag so again if you enjoy your work and you want more go to patreon.com slash socks machine and sign up today we have monthly plans starting at two dollars a month or you can save yourself 9% off monthly plans by signing up for an annual plan at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com